0: House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres.
1: Welcome back into the House of Mystery, and of course, I'm Al Warren. Now we've got, you know, the room is crowded. You know, I can't get enough attention here. So we've got Mr. Michael Hawley. Hi,
0: um, uh, Al. <laughs> just, just in case they talk about Jack the Rip Run here. I'm
1: here for you. Yeah, he's our Jack the Ripper man. He likes ripping Jack off, and uh, and we got the, the famous baseball icon, <laughs> <Yeah>. Dave Martino. <laughs> now I'm a, now I'm a baseball icon. Yeah, well, you're the baseball yeah. icon. You decided yeah. that last show. I mean, you know, yeah. I mean, hey, that guy isn't even a pro ball player. Well, I know, but it doesn't matter. You know, <laughs> yeah. the days, the days of internet, and we can be what we want to be. Dave Martino is now like the new John Smith. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> Throwing the balls. So, you know, um, so anyway, um, we will jump right into it today because we've got a man um, all the way um, from across the world talking to us today. And He's got a new book. Uh, the book is called China Hand. And uh, this is Scott Spacek. So thank you for being here, Scott.
2: Great to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: Um, Wow. So this is quite a a story, Um, the book and everything. Um, But before we get into the story, maybe maybe talk a little bit about how you came to writing this story.
2: Sure. So the answer is pretty simple. I mean, over the years living in China, I just saw, experienced, and heard about so many things I thought could be really great ingredients for a realistic, you know, torn-from-the-headlines espionage story, and I wanted to write one. There's really been so many, you know, great espionage novels involving Russia or the Middle East, but but very very few set in China or Asia more broadly. And it just seemed like the perfect time with, you know, China, the top potential rival to the U.S. right now, and the Chinese government determined to displace us economically, diplomatically, militarily. The FBI is opening a new China-related, you know, counterintelligence case every 12 hours. So I just thought reader demand was there, and and I'd had the background for a great story.
1: You know, it's, it's, it's interesting now, um, China it can be quite controversial in, in North America, like you know, people have a lot of, both Canada and the US have strong opinions and it's been in the news a lot about the different issues going on, um, does that ever worry you a little bit when you um,
2: are,
1: are writing about something from that part of the world?
2: Well, there's two things I I was worried about. You know, one is I was conscious that relative to a story set, especially in Europe, uh, Americans have generally less background about China. So you'd have to kind of explain, you know, the setting a lot more than you would, you know, uh, for another story. So I didn't want to be kind of academic about the book. But I did feel like if I wrote something, I'd have to kind of explain the background in more detail because, Otherwise, people might assume in some ways it's like, either they might assume it's like the U.S. in some ways, or they might kind of exoticize it in how they envisioned it. So one is just the kind of education that might be needed. The other, exactly as you said, I didn't want to demonize the place. So, you know, hopefully as readers read it, they'll see that I really, um, you know, over my, I've spent roughly 20 years, um, in China, and and it's really a wonderful place, you know, in many ways. And having spent so much of my time there and studying the language and really falling in love with the people and culture, I, I really didn't want to create a caricature of the country. So exactly as you said, I think there's this risk of as as the Chinese government does become a major rival, and 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 there's a lot of challenges. How do you how do you talk about that honestly without kind of you know writing a caricature or demonizing the place?
1: Yeah, and there's there's quite a. Um... There's like, I almost call it a, a cultural barrier, right? Because it must be hard coming from a different culture where it's obvious and try to get past that barrier, and I mean that as in where they actually start to be real with you as a people, as a culture. Like they start to accept you as as part of themselves. Would you say that's fair?
2: I mean, of course it's fair, and part of it's cultural, and part of it's just, you know, I often say linguistic. Um you know, and I work professionally, obviously, in China as well. And many people ask me, they say, hey, you know, how people might say, hey, I find it difficult to work, you know, with, with Chinese for this reason or that. And I say, look, like in their defense, could you imagine if somebody came to the U.S. and didn't speak didn't speak English, right? How, how would you, as a native-born American person who only spoke English, uh, you treat, with, uh, treat or kind of work with that person? Well, of course, it'd be a little... Awkward or a little bit difficult to break that barrier, and I think for them it's the same with with people who don't speak Chinese. Um, there's that cultural barrier, you could say, but a lot of it's just frankly linguistic. Because I found, you know, I do speak Mandarin, and I, I have certainly found that uh, overall the people actually are quite direct, quite outgoing, quite funny, quite normal in every 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 respect. Uh, especially once you can get through that language barrier.
1: Is that what you would call the biggest? Let's say. Um the biggest thing that, uh, let's say, Americans get wrong about China, like, it, it, the, it's kind of the culture?
2: I, I do. I mean, it's, you know, I joke, and I, I don't want to stereotype too much, but I, I, I know that uh, growing up as I did in the U.S. and whether I had, you know, Chinese, uh, there were other Chinese students I studied with or teachers or colleagues or whatever, there is that stereotype that, you know, people will say Asians are quiet. Well, if anything, I find Chinese as a culture and again i'm just stereotyping broadly are are actually quite quite direct and outgoing and uh in many ways you'd say quite quite american um but but of course you know you could imagine for people especially who've moved to the us uh that don't speak the language natively and i know i struggle this with this not being a native chinese speaker when i've had to work work in chinese i mean it's it's very difficult to come across as your genuine normal self when you're speaking in a foreign language. And I, I, do think that's a huge element, right?
1: Yeah. What? Well, so, um, what is the biggest thing we get wrong about China in the States?
2: I, I do think that there, uh, are, I do think there's this tendency, I don't know if I'm exactly answering your question, but when, when people in America tend to talk about China, um, they tend to come from one of two angles, each of which I find is, is wrong. You know, one, one angle is thats is that there is this exotic, people exoticize China and think that to understand it, you have to speak with the, these mysterious China hands it's a little bit of a joke, obviously, with the book title, but, you know, long time people who lived in China for a long time, love the country and they can kind of translate this mysterious culture because because it's so foreign and so different. Uh, and then when you speak with those, you know, so-called China hands, often maybe they are kind of in love with China and and, and generally view China through rose tinted glasses as well. So there's this uh, mistake. One, I think, is to exoticize the place and not ascribe kind of normal incentives and normal motivations to China or Chinese people. At the flip side, which also is kind of exoticizing it or treating it as as an other is, is to just demonize it and, and and describe, you know, ulterior motives or whatnot. I mean, in, in my view, and this has been my experience working there professionally negotiating contracts. It's also been my observation with, uh, you know with with. US China relations more broadly, the best thing to do with China is to treat it as a normal country driven by normal motivations and and I always joke you know Chinese people, I think people in general uh, tend to be motivated ultimately by the same things. I mean historically people want you know they want they want money, they want power, they want rela- relationships, they want sex. I mean there's there's just so many normal things people want and then they pursue them in some way and I broadly think, that the best way to think about China or Chinese people is to think of them very normally and assume that they're going after normal things. And in China's case as a country, you know, of course, they've grown a lot economically. It's remarkable just how much bigger, uh, how much wealthier China is than when I first went there 25 years or so ago. And, of course, China wants to kind of throw its weight around globally. I think that's very normal and not very strange. It doesn't make them evil. It just means they're trying to... uh, Play a bigger role in the world, and maybe be, frankly, the top the top dog. Well, is language
1: the biggest barrier to those um, who can't speak Chinese living in China, or is 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 it something else?
2: I, I think so. Uh, you know, it's it's not. I don't know if either one of you's you know been there, but it's it's not. Um, I, I find anymore such a difficult place to be there. I say anymore because when I first you know when I first went there, the per, per capita income in China was you know under a 1000 US dollars i mean the people in general were downright poor even the relatively wealthy in beijing or shanghai you know the the this, the hygiene standards the the infrastructure it was a poor developing country i mean when i first went i made 250 US dollars a month uh, in china was my was my salary and so back then you could say well you know if a real challenge was you know you couldn't get around you couldn't It was hard to get online. It was hard to make phone calls. It was hard to, you know, you'd, you'd get, uh, food poisoning on a certainly weekly basis, often every few days. I mean, it was definitely a challenge, you know, a hardship posting, as they used to say. Um, I think today it's, you know, I think it's, it's still not as wealthy as the U.S. by any, any standards, but it's, it's a different country, but it's to me not fundamentally different. Um, Living day-to-day, I'll say, it's not fundamentally different from living, let's say, in a, a, a very foreign European country. You know, that said, clearly, you know, I, I left in 2020, you know, soon after COVID had started. I, I should say that in addition to language, something that does kind of, I'll say, wear on you. I mean, clearly there is a lot of surveillance. Clearly things are being monitored. Clearly um, it gets frustrating when you see sometimes the way things are reported in the news, you know, the manipulation of things, like clearly that, it doesn't it doesn't affect, I'll say, your day-to-day like living standards. It's not difficult because it's difficult to, to get something to eat or, you know, live your kind of life day-to-day. But clearly, I think emotionally, um, especially as an American who grew up elsewhere, the, uh, the control of information, the you know, the authoritarianism that you do see, I mean, that, that does, I'll say, wear on you. It doesn't typically impact you day to day until, until maybe it does, um, mm-hmm. as you've seen some Americans get in trouble. But I don't know if that answers the question. I know it's a little rambling.
1: Yeah. Uh, so let's talk about the premise of the book. What, what's the basic idea in this book or the basic story?
2: Well, the, the basic story, and then I'll get into maybe how I decided to write or came, came about, uh, you know, came up with the plot Basic story is it's kind of coming of age adventure story meets spy novel. So the background is, you know, a new university grad gets an offer to teach at a Chinese university and he just goes off and he studied a little bit of Chinese and he goes to China looking for adventure and to perfect his Chinese. He ends up teaching at a, at an elite Chinese university, uh, where they happen to teach diplomats and, you know, frankly, spies. Um, but, you know, midway through his time there, the CIA approaches and just, he says his beautiful colleague and love interest is the daughter of a top general who's on the verge of defecting, and they need his help to get her out. So it's supposed to be this simple mission, this simple operation, um, but of course nothing goes according to plan, and it ends up being a, you know, a chase for his life or run for his life you know, with the full power of the Chinese state after him. That's kind of a quick background. I used to say, um, for people old enough to remember some of these books, I used to say it's between genres, it's a little bit, a book called Rivertown, which was a nonfiction book by Peter Hessler about, you know, going to teach in China and experiencing it. It's a little bit of Rivertown, you know, guy t teaches English in China meets the firm. He doesn't realize what he's signed up for, you know, meets the, the born identity. He's kind of transformed into a super spy. Um, that's kind of the background. Um, how did I write it? Well, you know, teaching back when I did at the school and then living for many years, I, I just frankly saw, you know, a number of things that I thought could be, or I heard about, things that could be the basis for a great novel. Whether it's um, the the surveillance and authoritarianism I mentioned, whether it's going to kind of diplomatic or consulate related parties, and obvious, you know seeing people that were obviously intelligence officers or whatnot, trying to kind of buddy up to people or um, being you know, frankly, you know, as many Americans living in China have been, you know, detained. Uh, by the police at some point, just some some kind of adventurous things that I thought could be great elements of the story. But then the real plot idea came from in December two thousand, a chop, a top Chinese colonel named Su Junping defected while with a military delegation in the U.S. And it just got me thinking. You know, I, I guess it was easy for him to defect. He was he often traveled to the U.S. for work. He he could just basically you know. Leave. He could just basically uh, defect while in the U.S. But did he have a family? How did they get out? Who might have been involved in helping them? And I realized or I I knew about a story where a Princeton professor after Tiananmen Square had been involved helping a Chinese dissident actually flee, you know, even though he was sort of under house arrest, you know, he helped, Professor helped this guy flee to the U.S. consulate or embassy in Beijing and eventually, you know, get out. And I just started thinking, okay, what if there's this top, PLA official like Su Jinping in, in 2000 who needed to defect. but you know to get his family out, you know they need somebody's help who's living there. It just happens to be a random American uh, who's just doing something normal like teaching or studying or, or working and, and then everything kind of went from there. So that was the concept and uh, I guess for, for readers today' it's, it's a little bit like Tokyo Vice in the sense, except in Beijing and with PLA instead of the Yakuza in the sense that it's kind of an adventure story living in China and then this American kind of gets caught up, you know, in a, a crazy kind of espionage story.
1: And how is it you create your characters for something like this? Because it sounds like there's a lot of reality and then there's this, you know what I'm saying? There's some, a lot of reality, but there's also fiction in that. So do you draw from real people to create the characters or is this just totally your your own?
2: Well, it's, it's clearly a mix of both. So as, you know, as I, as I tried to say, like, the, the plot overall is heavily drawn from a whole series of real events. So I mentioned the inspiration of the Chinese colonel defecting. You know, I mentioned the inspiration of this Princeton professor who was involved. There were a bunch of other things as well. So clearly the true elements are, you know, there's also the U.S. bombing of the Chinese embassy in Belgrade. There's boss Eli and the new leftist movement and a CIA officer who kind of un- a turncoat U.S. former CIA officer uh, named uh, Jerry Chun-Sing Lee, who who is believed to expose much of the network. So much of the plot is kind of inspired by, I say, real events. And then the characters, again, it's a, bi- it's a bit of a mix. So for, be- for better or for worse, I will say, especially 25 years ago, relatively few people went to China. So I, I joke that there were a lot of real characters there. Uh, so, you know, kind of the old, you, know, you joke, the old China hands who'd been there since the you know, since the '70s or early '80s, kind of very interesting characters like, like the uh, you could say the Tom the Tom Blum character that's in the book, or or other just uh, fairly random Americans, maybe like myself, but also you know the the character Will is a little bit inspired by a former military guy that that I taught with at the school, and and clearly in Andrew's case. He's he's inspired by, you could say, elements in my own life, but but it's definitely not me. I mean what I what I sometimes say is in the same way that you know Jack Carr has drawn on real elements uh, from his own experience as a Navy SEAL to create James Reese, well I've tried to do the same with Chinahan, but clearly you know Andrew Callahan is not me and none of the characters are, are, are directly real people. Well you are
1: clearly Lily. <laughs> <laughs> exactly.
2: Exactly. exactly. <laughs> Actually, my wife my, my wife uh, my wife uh, is kind of suspicious of uh, of who this mysterious Lily might be. But uh, yeah. yeah, it's definitely not me.
1: <laughs> well, how how do you experience your characters? Do you do you have an inner monologue? Can you hear the dialogue in your head, or is it more um, th- that you visualize the story as you're putting everything into prose?
2: Well, the the, re- the real challenge, the real thing. You know, I'm a first-time writer. I, I've never. You know, I never took a writing class. I never, uh, uh, this is really the first thing I've ever written. And the, the real danger for me on that that question of how realistic is it is, uh, I, you do default sometimes to writing, especially this book is in the first person, obviously. When you're writing in the first person, writing something that, that starts to come across like too much of a memoir or too autobiographical, and, and you do, at least I found, I defaulted to almost... Having Andrew come across like me, even even when I tried to fictionalize him, I was afraid. I was afraid that's how he came across, and and as a result, I think and, you know the first the first first and second drafts I think came in at like 450 pages, and I think the biggest the biggest change, frankly, between those fir- early drafts and the final was just slashing stuff that was too close to me and uh, making sure that I was really creating a character as opposed to, uh, you know, recounting personal events. So uh, that's, as a first-time writer, I do think I default to uh, things a little bit closer to my own experience, but that's probably natural. Scott, how about
0: uh, Hong Kong? Do you get Hong Kong involved? Because uh, I had been there before the... A time when they uh, became part of China, and then, but that's very uh, lots of, lots of English speaking uh, was going on there.
2: You know, in an, in an earlier draft, because I've I've spent a lot of time in Hong Kong. I, I traveled there back when I was teaching, and then I, I did live there at one point for a few years. Um, I I did try to bake it in because I was trying. You know, so many kind of fun international adventure stories do kind of uh, jump from city to city and so on. In, in an earlier draft, there was there was a key scene in Hong Kong. Um, I I removed it all because I just found it um, a little bit difficult to bake into this story. But uh, you know, wait for the sequel and it will show up show up there.
1: <laughs> so at the end of the day, someone picks up the book and they take it home, read it. Is there something you want them to take away from the book? Is there a subtext or something other than? the entertainment and the story itself.
2: The, the only real subtext, I mean, I, I do hope that readers uh, go away, and look, clearly the book is dramatized, clearly it's fictionalized, clearly, and I'm a little, I shouldn't say embarrassed, but, you know, clearly there are elements that are uh, a little over the top, I mean, as in any adventure story. But, but I really hope that, you know, readers, especially ones who maybe haven't been to China uh, or Asia in general. I mean, hopefully they learn something. Hopefully they feel like they've a little bit gotten to experience, you know, a culture they didn't they didn't know better, didn't know very well. And, and, and hopefully they feel like they understand it, you know, just a little bit better. And then hopefully um, because of some of the plot elements about, you know, of course China's trying to, I think, usurp the U.S. as a, as a great power, um, you know, hopefully people start to take China a bit more seriously. I mean, I'm always astonished, and this is one of the you know backgrounds to the book. Like I said, there's there's so many stories focused on Russia, for example, as a as a threat to the U.S. as a rival. People have grown up with the Cold War and and so on, and I do think that's a big driver of why you know even though, at least in my view, the only The only existential threat to the U.S., the only country that could possibly surpass the U.S. in in our lifetimes is China. It's the only true near-peer or soon-to-be-peer military and economic rival. And yet, it's astonishing to me that the headlines overwhelmingly just focus on Russia and the Middle East, and our diplomatic corps continues to focus on Russia and the Middle East, Um, it, it, I really hope people start to take China a bit more seriously as a major power, as a rival, um, and I think that would be a good outcome.
1: Oh, so why do you think everyone um, just sort of doesn't take China so seriously? Why, like, why they're put Russia? I, I, I sort of think that Russia tends to be more aggressive, like in their moves, especially like what they're doing now and the foreign Croatia and stuff. If Russia wants to do something, um, they'll just go do it type thing, and, and it doesn't surprise me. Um, but what, what do you think is the reason, that in general, people don't take China so serious?
2: I, I, I think there's two or three reasons. I mean, one is people don't have the background, and, and look, just a generation ago, China was pretty poor. So th- this, is, this wasn't a challenge, I think, that we had 25 years ago, right? So I think one is... People didn't grow up with this challenge. They didn't kind of study it in school. The diplomatic corps didn't grow up, um, you know, taught to to treat to treat China necessarily as a rival. So I think there's there's a bit of background as kind of one. I do think there's a second element, which is I think China as a country has very intentionally for many years. I mean, Deng Xiaoping had the had the the adage. Uh, I'll get it slightly wrong. It was something like, you know, bide your time and hide your brilliance. Uh, this idea of China while it's relatively weak, should go out of its way to come across as non-threatening and and not uh, get the U.S. to focus on it. And then building on that, you know, there's clearly, clearly, a, you know, a massive, uh, I'll say, uh, lobbying and influence effort uh, by China and by, I'll say, friends of China to, to not treat China as a rival. So I do think, and I talk a little bit, I hint about this in the book, even though it's set years ago, I do think China has has truly infiltrated. I mean, U.S. academia, U.S. corporates—they actively, you know, push U.S. corporate corporates to lobby on China's behalf. Don't don't let the U.S. You know, if you if you don't help us get the U.S. government not to push back on something or not to um, treat us like you know if you don't. Uh, lobby on our behalf, you know, we won't let you into China, we won't let you do business here. And, and I do think that universities, academics, uh, the Chinese government, many, many people lobbying on China's behalf have kind of kept it out of the focus. I mean, you do see even, even in books and media, it's interesting trying to get a China, I've heard this from many people, if you try to make a movie focused on China as a rival, it gets killed because they know that China will punish the publishing company, the movie house, I mean, obviously, people saw this with Top Gun. With Top data. Gun, yes. People, people were all worried. Look, if you even show this patch, the the the, the, the movie comp, the movie house will never be able to show another movie in China. You see the same. I heard the same with with uh, with books. With with writing my own book, it was definitely an issue getting it published. I heard it from very well-known authors, and I can't disclose who they are, who've proposed sequels or even had a best-selling China-related book. And, uh, you know, people said, look, we just can't make this into a movie because, you know, we're not allowed to touch on China. And I do think the cumulative effect of all these things is, is the average person never hears about China's arrival. And so they just think it's not an issue, uh, you know, until I think one day it will wake up and be a major issue. And I think that time is now.
0: I think the uh, FBI uh, Director Ray recently made a comment that he was stunned by how much espionage has been going on with China when he came into pop, uh, you know, his position.
2: Oh, look, absolutely. I mean, even to personalize it or give a, a true anecdote, I mean, I, I, I used to work with a lot of U.S. educated Chinese engineers, and I remember one of them half joking but half seriously saying that basically everybody he knew that studied it or worked in the U.S. in a technical area at some point either was contacted or knew of a close acquaintance that was contacted by the local Chinese consulate, to hand over some sort of information or technology or whatnot they had they had access to. China is, is hmm. well, well known for, you know, they, they manage actively, you know, the um, uh, there's these so-called Chinese students and scholars associations. It's basically like the Chinese Student Association at every major US University. These are part of the so-called United Front. They are actively managed by the Chinese consulates. Uh, the Chinese consulates monitor the activity of Chinese students in the U.S., and they actively push them to help where needed or help where wanted, uh, you know, in the U.S. with information, intelligence, et cetera, et cetera. It is truly, as, as I think Ray has said, like a, on China's part, a whole of society effort to, to steal information and, and and gain leverage over the U.S. and And I do think people need to wake up to... You know, it's, again, it's not that China's an evil place. I just think they're leveraging every asset they have in a very systematic way. And the U.S., I think, has been very naive about this threat.
0: I agree. And also, I think what's been happening the last few years, and this is where Russia is involved, too, is the United States seems to be an experiment for authoritarians to see how much they can get uh, – the United States can get controlled by fake news, the whole system. They're watching very closely. <laughs>
2: Oh, look, and, and it's not, and to be clear, I, I agree with you entirely, and Russia has been a, a real problem there, and let there be no doubt that China does exactly the same things, and I think, you know, with TikTok, I am, look, what, two, here are two examples. One, we're doing this this meeting on Zoom. You know, Zoom's back end is entirely in China. Uh, th- I have no doubt this this call is monitored in China, uh, you know, the vast majority of the Zoom engineering team is in Shanghai. I have no doubt uh, that, that, that they leverage this, right? Uh, likewise, TikTok. No doubt whatsoever. As they even admitted finally a, a month or so ago again, everything that goes, every morsel of information that goes into TikTok runs through Beijing and is, is being analyzed and monitored and leveraged in some influence campaign, you know, by China, either today or in the future. By, by Chinese intelligence, let there be no doubt, right? And I think it is astonishing to me, as much as we've talked about so-called fake news and Russia, Russian disinformation, which is a real threat, to be clear. Um, China is either doing or looking to do the same things, and they're looking to leverage platforms like Zoom and um, and TikTok, which which all run through China.
0: And House of mystery? They're they're leveraging everything. I can see
2: it <laughs> absolutely and look and look the u s does as well, you know, like as they will point out, you know there, China has found flaws in cisco routers and and all sorts of things like this, and they'll say, hey the u s does the same thing and and I'm not denying that, so back to my point about you know let's treat China as a normal country. well, let's do so, but in that in that in that uh, way let's let's be eyes wide open about maybe the vulnerabilities we're creating um you know, by doing different things. And in some cases, we may say, hey, you know, it's fine to import, uh, I'm, I'm making it up to import uh, toys or consumer goods or some things. But you might say, hey, do we want, uh, do we want to have uh, our social media or telecommunications running through China? You know, as, as, as you might have seen in the news just this week, there was a story, a report, I think, by CNN, where they said, you know, there's a, a belief that potentially, you know, Huawei uh, cell towers near uh, missile bases in the Middle East and Middle Midwest, uh, we're, we're, able to block the potential launch or communications with, you know, with, with nuclear weapons in, in Wyoming or something, right? Yes. And yes. Let's just be, let's just be eyes wide open about the vulnerabilities we're creating and some we can accept and some we probably can't in the same way. By the way, I say China effectively blocks all these areas that, that I'm talking about. So, you know they've they've long ago, roughly in two thousand eight, they kicked out all the Western, you know, internet companies. They certainly uh, are trying to block or rip out U.S. technology across their their economy. So I often say it's not about demonizing China. I say let's just treat China as a peer, as an equal, and and let's look for some symmetrical re- uh, relationship. And if they if they block our goods, you know, let's not do it in a kind of over the top. Um, uh, nonsensical way but you know what like there are probably areas where they've blocked some things from our side and maybe we should just treat them equally and maybe we can then jointly agree to lower barriers but until they lower some on U.S. Uh, technology or products maybe we should raise some on our side right
1: well yeah and when you're when you were putting the story together when you were um in involved somewhat and and you do any sort of research or you're doing any sort of you know, work on this story, or were you worried about being watched?
2: Well, I have no, no doubt. I mean, it's it's funny when the cold, you know, the Cold War ended. All these people who had lived in Russia or Eastern Europe, they discovered that there were these files on you know on them. These might have been very normal people who just happened to visit Russia or USSR at the time. Um, I have no doubt there are files on me. I have no idea, and no doubt that um, a little bit, as as Andrew in the book discovers. You know a bug i have no i no doubt there were there was surveillance equipment and there's various files on me um and certainly you know without going into too much detail i mean there were incidents where it fairly innocuous uh i was at a harvard alumni event in roughly 2008 2009 and i'm not quite I still don't exactly know what was going on it was a relatively small event in shanghai and at least 20 police kind of came in, lined us all up, took all our photos with, you know, high-resolution cameras from multiple angles, and I don't know if this was an early attempt to kind of capture our faces in a way that they somehow didn't when you entered the country, because obviously they take your picture when you go in. I don't know why they did this, but it was one of the odder things, but I'm sure that showed up in some file, and, and of course, yeah, of course we're monitored, and I tried to, you know, bake that into the book as well
1: yeah uh, you know it's it's kind of strange and I think that uh, it's kind of scary in a way just this does this, this whole knowing about all this stuff and being sort of somewhat in, in in involved in it does that sort of put you on edge a little
2: well it, I mean sometimes I do I do wonder if it's made me paranoid I mean uh, paranoid's a bit extreme obviously but it, it has definitely opened my eyes to things that the average person, um, you know, wouldn't think about. I mean, you asked, what are the challenges living living in China? Clearly, and I, I've spoken with a bunch of reporters about this. Certainly every reporter I know at some point has been arrested or detained. And many people I know who've, like myself, who lived in China for years, especially, you know, years ago, at some point we were, as, as one example, I was talking to a reporter about this at, at, at an anniversary, at, at Tiananmen Square anniversary, we happened to be walking through Tiananmen Square on June 4th of, of, of some year. And there was a protest. Uh, some people unfurled a banner. And, you know, we got kind of tackled and thrown in a van and held for, you know, several hours being asked, you know, were we affiliated with that protest? What were we doing right there? That was not a coincidence, of course. You know, confess, confess that somehow we helped orchestrate it and are with the CIA. And that went on for several, you know, uncomfortable hours. And clearly there's surveillance, clearly, you um, you know, people have hinted at knowing things that, uh, that could compromise it's Clearly, clearly that they've, and I've, I've read, I was reading a story about this just a couple days ago, um, I think with regards to the Fed. Uh, yeah, there was a story about the Fed a couple days ago, I think, in the New York Times or Wall Street Journal, where um, it's alleged now that, that China has a network working within the Federal Reserve, and they've been using that to, you know, try to get information about rate changes and maybe influence, Uh, influence things. Um, And clearly, in in the case of one person they were trying to leverage, they basically said, look, you know, we have dirt on you. We've been monitoring your calls, you know, either, either, um, uh, you know, help us or we will, um, you know, reveal this. So just traditional blackmail, no doubt with, with, you know, what they know from Zoom and monitoring, it's well known, you know, uh, they uh, will tap, Probably everybody who who goes to China, your cell phone it gets penetrated. It you know some type of malware gets put on it. Clearly, if you use uh, WeChat, uh, there's some kind of malware that monitors your microphone and probably camera. Um, clearly, they will use that for blackmail and, in key situations. I have no doubt.
0: Yeah, we call that compromise. Us, yeah,
2: us, us, ru- us, Russian <laughs> agents. <laughs> it's, it, it's exactly, it's exactly the same thing. And there's, you know, um, there's, uh, 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 you know, well-known in, 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 um, espionage books is the story of, you know, honey traps and so on. And China is also well-known for leveraging that, uh, just as Russia does. So all these things, it's not that China's evil or totally different, but let there be no doubt they play hardball with the best of them. Right.
1: Yeah. You know, and I don't, I don't think, um, people necessarily um, dislike China more than, let's say, Russia or anything else. But isn't it, isn't it more about the way they treat their own people? Because isn't that kind of, uh, um, you know, the idea in, in America is that China is still very uh, bad to its people and there's not a lot of freedom. Um, do you think people would treat them as a more serious threat, let's say, if they were a freer country? Because in a sense that if they had more of a um, a country that run more like the U.S.
2: I don't know. I, I do think that, that maybe the, the reason or, or you know, one, one reason, even people who go there don't always see it as a threat, is I, I should be clear. You know, when you go, the, the, the people, again, speaking in broad strokes and stereotypes, the, pe- the people are very warm. Typically, if you visit for a business trip or you visit as a tourist, you'll have a wonderful experience. People will be very nice. The average person is very friendly, and you'll go away with this. And, and by the way, you typically—it's funny—I uh, I got a, a negative book review from somebody who basically commented. They said, "Look, I visited China 20 years ago, and 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 uh, nothing like this happened to me." And I actually interacted with the person, saying, "Oh, great, glad you went there. Hope you glad you had a good time." And um, I sort of got to know him a little bit better. He, was, he basically said he went for five days in 1998 or something and had a great time, and he didn't see any surveillance, therefore it couldn't be happening. And, and I, I, do <laughs> think that, I do think that, um, you know, that sort of personal experience influences things in a, in a major way. And, and like I said, I also think that many, there are so many Chinese, a big, a big role too, or issue I think is, not issue, but influences, there are. Something like three hundred thousand Chinese students in the U.S. There are literally millions of of Chinese who now work in the U.S. People interact with Chinese people all the time, and they sort of say, "Hey, China's not so bad." I work with I work with Jack. He's a nice guy. I couldn't believe anything's going on. And by the way, Jack might be perfectly innocent and a perfectly nice guy. It doesn't mean that that uh, the Chinese government. You know, maybe as you're hinting by separating the government from the people, it, it doesn't mean that the Chinese government isn't. Isn't very calculating and trying to, uh, you know, do things. And, and by the way, it's also the case back to why the Chinese people themselves, as you were just hinting, why they say what they do, it's because they all know they're monitored. They, they have to watch what they say or they could be in trouble because, you know, it is a, a very authoritarian country.
0: You have Japan involved in your book at all?
2: at 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 the very at the very end so again wait for the sequel uh, <laughs> okay but, um, it, it does it does end a little bit in japan there's a couple of japanese characters but no the the book itself you know i um a little bit linked to what we've been talking about it's it's funny that i wrote it originally i just assumed i would write a book in the present but but back to where i started and where we started in the discussion about what were the challenges i felt i found myself trying to educate the readers so much on basic elements of how we got where we are in the U.S.-China relationship and so on that it was almost easier just to start at the origin and say, okay, the, the story takes place 25 years ago or 20 years ago, and mm. it's at kind of on the ground floor of kind of China starting to plan these things, maybe trying to get the U.S. distracted in the Middle East for 20 years so they can break out, maybe trying to plant these um, you know, agents in the U.S. or or leverage companies or leverage students or get compromise, as you said, on on people. So th- this story takes place 20 years ago and it's a bit of an origin story. Um, but but yeah, the, the, the sequel will heavily involve Japan, at least if it turns out as I'm currently planning for it to. Uh, and there's a little bit of involvement in Japan, but otherwise, uh, you know, I moved here really after I finished the book and it didn't originally intend for Japan to play a major role. <laughs> yeah.
0: But I'm sure they are going to be anyway, because they're both power, financially powerful.
2: Well, c- well, clearly the reason it's involved in, and the reason there's an obvious linkage is um, Japan historically has been kind of top dog in Asia, at least in, in, in modern times, at least, you know, clearly in the last hundred or so years. And clearly before, you know, China passes the U.S., it will have passed, it already has passed, you could say, Japan. And Japan definitely, I mean, China definitely has a has a bit of a vengeful mindset here. I mean, uh, Chinese are educated. I talk a lot about this in the book. There is a real patriotic, they call it patriotic education. They drill into students' heads this idea that, you know, Japan is evil and we need to get revenge on Japan. And it it is Frankly, they, they sort of do the same with the U.S., that the U.S. has always tried to hold uh, China down, and we need to kind of rise up and, and pass the U.S., and we'll get our revenge on the U.S. too. Um, but, but yeah, Japan feels very threatened. There's a real rivalry. Uh, there's a real sense that if there is any conflict, Japan will kind of be at the front lines. So, so clearly, if you're writing an espionage-related story, it's not difficult to have Japan play a role there. Yeah.
1: Wow. So did you have a sequel plan? Like in your mind before you were, uh, finished this book and, and doing a sequel and idea, did you, do you sort of outline all this ahead of time and kind of know where you're going to go and just telling the story? Is there going to be more than another sequel or what, what's kind of your idea?
2: Well, you know, like I said, the, the original idea here, was or or if not the original, the idea that I had relatively soon was that this would be kind of the origin story of of a series of books. I'll say based on or inspired by actual events, because there's so many real espionage-related stories. So obviously, as I said, this one is primarily inspired by the defection of a of a top Chinese military official. There are other stories you could say in my head. I mean, in the news every day is an espionage, is a cyber related uh, uh, espionage, cyber theft story in the news. And without giving too much away, that's going to be uh, at the core of, of, of the sequel I've planned. And similarly, you know, we've already hinted at the role that uh, U.S. corporations play in all this. So China leverages, um, you know, the, the you know, the, the China leverages access to the China market to influence U.S. universities and academics to push them to basically toe the line with china so you see it with the nba you know if you if you speak up about if even one player tweets about taiwan the nba may be banned from china so you know what nba you go lobby on our behalf uh you know to to uh, to get our view out there likewise any major company you lobby on our behalf or we will kick you out you know same google even though google is not currently in china at least uh, domestically in the way they used to be. There's no domestic, you know, google.com. Google makes a lot of money uh, cross-border helping Chinese companies advertise in the U.S. You know what, Google, if you don't want us to shift our ad dollars to Facebook, you lobby the U.S. government. Uh, Same with banks. That whole role of China twisting the arms of U.S. companies and and universities, getting them to effectively, in many ways, uh, be on China's side. I mean, I always, going a little bit on tangent here, but I, I'm always astonished that you had Google and tech companies partnering in many ways on AI with the Chinese military uh, through a, universities, but really with the Chinese military, while at the same time, you know China, Google in particular and and I think uh others basically said look we will not work with the US you know certainly ICE or the US military on AI because the US is evil you know and they didn't say, say it explicitly but they were they would not work with the US government in some of the same ways that often they were working with the Chinese government i just think that's absurd and all these things will right. show up equal well, i'll put it that way
1: so it sounds like you're going to bring uh, the series uh, from like '98 and into uh, current times.
2: Yeah, if you if you if you jump to the last page, uh, it sort of gives it away. But I, I did toy, and I could still go back to this. Originally, my agent and I were talking about kind of stepping forward one step at a time. You could always have these look-backs taking place over the last twenty years, like things that were buried and now have come out. But I think just be just because people often do want the story in the present and there's so much going on right now that uh i think the immediate sequel will take place uh you know in, in current times
1: right. Wow! so now um how do you like people readers and stuff to get in contact with you what is uh, your contact information uh, do you have like a website social media yeah, so phone e- number
2: <laughs> easiest way you can find me at, at com. i've got my my author page you can find me at twitter at scottsbasic uh as well those are probably the two best the website or at twitter um and i think if you if you just search for the book china hand or china hand Scott's basic you can find a whole bunch of other uh whether the simon and schuster or post hill sites or other reviews from kirkus and and others so uh Pretty easy to find me.
1: Yeah, of course, we'll have that linked up on our website and everyone can find you with one click, you know. Um,
2: so on the new one, are, are
1: you going to involve the um, pandemic and are you going to even touch that or do you ever go there with that?
2: I haven't, you know, I haven't yet. I do I do hint at some conspiracy theories about the pandemic, even in China hand. Uh, You know, there's been a lot of allegations and hints and, at some point, uh, you know, a Chinese official says, well, you know, it wouldn't be so hard for us to do, you know, the bioterrorism or so on. Uh, so that that a little bit pops up, and the city of Wuhan pops up, you know, very tangentially in China hand. Um, I, I haven't explicitly yet put um, the pandemic uh, into the, I'll say the core elements of the plot, but, I, but I'm also relatively early in, in writing it, so you know you never know. But the the, the sequel is very focused on the uh, kind of cyber espionage and and uh, chi- China influencing companies and kind of all these parties and the dynamics. So not doing a good job of pitching it, but it's still early days.
1: <laughs> well, it's got to be it, you know it, it's got to be um, I don't know very you have to be very careful when you get into conspiracy too, especially with the pandemic and things like that. I would imagine you'd not want to get too deep into that.
2: Well, you have to in general, because again, back to my point about not wanting to demonize China, you've got to do that. And, and also, to be frank, like, as I said, it is, it is, I'll just say sad, the extent to which um, may, maybe influence, I mean, China does a good job. You, you might have, you might have uh, seen in the news, often the Chinese government very openly says that it's racist. It's racist to criticize China. Right. If you criticize the Chinese government, you're just being racist. And and I do think they've cleverly leveraged a lot of the 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 kind of whether it's the culture wars or the kind of uh, cultural dynamics in the U.S. right now, uh, you know, to get their way. And I will say that, you know, whenever you write a book about China, you you're a little bit damned if you do, damned if you don't on almost every element, because I kind of find in in sharing early drafts with people. I either found I'd share it with a so-called old China hand who'd say, no, this is too hard on China. You're you're demonizing them, or somebody would say, This is how can you how can you make China look like they'd be spying on the US? You have you have that group, and then on the other side, you have the kind of you could say Fox News or hard extreme right conservatives who are saying, no, no, you've gotta amp it up more. Like you're you're downplaying just how evil China is. So it's it's quite difficult, uh, I'll say touching on China because People don't know it well, and many people seem a little dissatisfied. Whether it's agents or editors or movie houses, um, so exactly as you said, it's very tricky. I've tried to thread the needle, um, but ultimately, I'll leave it up to I'll leave it up to readers to decide for themselves.
1: Were Were you in China when the pandemic hit?
2: I was actually coincidentally in in, uh, in Hong Kong um, at for that very recent period. So we were in Hong Kong, uh, but I was I was working a lot. I was working almost every week in China um, right up until the lockdown. So we, we knew they were going to lock down. We, I had been working in, in Shanghai almost on a weekly basis, but living at the time in, in, uh, in Hong Kong. And I was in Hong Kong until late uh, 2020. So they had already, you know, really they locked, tried to get the chronology right. You know, um, basically uh, schools shut roughly, I think it was January 24th of 2020, uh, they were closing the borders. It was either from, I think, from roughly March 1 of 2020. And things were actually not terrible on and off in lockdown in Hong Kong in early 2020. But schools were closed. And as I said, you know, in the in the prep to this, we have two young kids. And we just decided, you know, given the way this seemed to be moving and, you know, we'd been looking at, 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 at going elsewhere for a while. That's, that's why we left. But yeah, I was. Very much in, in Greater China, I'll say. At the beginning of the pandemic, living in Hong Kong and often traveling to mainland China.
0: Or he was really living in Wuhan. He probably knows a yeah. little bit more.
2: <laughs> we got to talk to him more, Al.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, what's going on here? So, was it a bat, or was it a conspiracy? <laughs> is it was it self, pre-made?
2: You know, look, what do I know? But all I will say is, I'm, <laughs> I, I, I'm, you know, like I'm back to the back to the point about about China leveraging influence. I, I do think, and I am not a virologist, and so in that regard, I'm just like all of you, but it's a little bit, I think, as John Stewart said, I mean, look, there's a level four, you know, bio uh, research lab at the epicenter of where this breaks out. The, the, the speed at which I think China was able to lobby and push, you know, and twist arms of people to, to say that that is absolutely not possible, the speed at which, you know, the WHO and the U.S. basically dismissed the idea that this could have been a lab leak, I think was criminal. I think it's, in many ways, it's, look, I'm a layperson, but it's the obvious reason, it's the obvious cause. I'm not saying that China engineered it. I'm just saying that they, to me, And to basically everyone I know that lived in China, they say, of course, this was a lab leak. But I think this was a clear influence campaign. And they they basically twisted the arms of all the U.S. researchers that were doing research in collaboration with China. They twisted the arms of companies. They twisted the arms of media. They very quickly pushed. I mean, you had all of U.S. media, and this was a clear influence campaign also probably aligned with the fact that everybody wanted to demonize anything affiliated with anything that Trump said. Clearly, though, to me, the obvious story uh, was, was it was somehow a lab leak from, from, from that, that Wuhan uh, lab. But, you know, like, I'm not a virologist, but the, the speed at which that whole concept was dismissed and criticized as racism or whatnot was, was truly a remarkable Chinese influence campaign. Uh, right up there with anything Russia's ever done.
0: So coincidentally, the uh, Secret Service lost their emails on January sixth, and at that time, <laughs> something strange. Exactly,
2: and in the same way, it would be nice, you know, the same way that the media will jump on any Russian conspiracy. Conspiracy. I would encourage them to investigate China conspiracies, and some will be false, but some will be some will be true. Right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, we know Bill Gates created the whole thing, right? So, <laughs> you know, I've had nothing but urges to buy Windows and sell my Mac ever since. I thought I it was my, I
2: thought it was Zucker I thought it was Zuckerberg, that's what I heard. But uh, Well, that's yeah, true. Right, right.
1: <laughs> well, this is great. I really appreciate the conversation. And uh, now the book we're talking about is called China Hand, and our guest is the author, Scott Spacek. So thank you for being
0: on the show.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: Great. Thank you.
2: Tired of wasting time trying to decide what to watch on your streaming service? Go
0: to our website and look for the Martino movie reviews. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me?